0: My name is George Gere, and I'm the Dean of the Barbara Jordan Community School of Public Affairs here at Texas Southern University. And so, on behalf of the University and the Barbara Jordan School, (laughs) (laughs) I would like to welcome you to this very important forum on actions of change from the civil rights movement to environmental justice. We're quite delighted meaning those of us in the Barbara Jordan School of Public Affairs to uh, be partnering with the Rothko Chapel on this very uh, important forum. I would like to thank my colleagues, Drs. Drs-, Drs buller and Johnson for doing the yeoman's work from our end in trying to get this together uh, Uh, and to recommit the Barbara Jordan School to continue collaboration with the Ruffco Chapter. I was speaking with the Executive Director and I was saying to him that we certainly will be looking for more opportunities uh, for collaboration. We convene this forum as we all know on what would have been the 91st uh, birth anniversary of Dr. King. And as I bring my own brief remarks to a close, I just want to remind all of us, not that we've forgotten, but a reminder is always good, to remind all of us that one of the major ways in which we can honor Dr. King's legacy and keep promoting it is to focus our attention on social justice. Social justice, as we know, is multidimensional. And although environmental justice is one aspect of that, but I will argue that it is at the core of social justice. And you might be wondering why. Because I would suggest that it is indispensable to human existence itself. Uh, All of the issues that we deal with, from poverty to racial inequality, environmental justice has serious ramifications for all of those. So unless we address the centrality of environmental justice, those various struggles, no matter what progress we make in them, will certainly be incomplete. So I would like to recommit my colleagues in the Barbara Jordan Mickey Layden School of Public Affairs to keep working with you in this quest in terms of educating, advocating, doing research and the resulting knowledge from that and the applications that we have for addressing the variety of societal problems that are un- undergirded by The issue of environmental justice. So it gives me a distinct pleasure at this time to introduce Mr. David Leslie, the Executive Director of the Rothko Chapter. Thank you very much.
1: Good evening. First thing I want to do is to give special thanks to Texas Southern University for hosting this year's annual Rothko Chapel. Dr. Martin Luther King birthday celebration and observance. Thank you very much. Now, one of the things that you might say, in addition to why we are here, well, we are here because normally we would be here. Uh, The chapel has been the host for this program, partnering with a lot of different educational institutions, other civic organizations over the year, but we are undergoing a bit of renovation at the moment. We're actually restoring the chapel to, It's original uh, light, if you've been in it before, it had a big baffle that hung in. We're redoing the lighting. We're redoing the audiovisual system. We're also building a new welcome house and eventually a new program center on the chapel campus. So I will just say it's great to have a place to host this with a partner that we've worked at with for decades with Texas Southern University. So I want to say, Dean uh, Kia, thank you very much for extending for your staff colleagues. I also want to say thank you very much to the Rothko staff colleagues that I work with because, indeed, it takes a team to put this uh, event together. So thank you all very much. For the Rothko Chapel, the living legacy of Dr. King is embodied in a very important sculpture on the chapel grounds, Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk. This important public work of art was purchased by John and Dominique de Menil, the actual founders of the Rothko Chapel in the mid 1960s, with the intention of having this sculpture placed uh, in the reflecting pool down by City Hall here in Houston. City Hall leaders at the time, however, uh, afraid that this placement might disrupt the waters a bit because de Menil's had one caveat. One thing that had to be part of this is a dedication plaque to then the recently slain and martyred Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. The Art Commission here at the time approved the purchase of the sculpture. It was a public art grant combined with the Demon Mills Fund. But when it got to City Council, the leaders turned the gift down. So the obelisk sat in the foundry yard for a while. And then at the, uh, in the late, uh, early uh, 1970s, Mark Rothko, Barnett Newman, and the founders of the Rothko Chapel determined that it would be an ideal place to put it here in Houston at the Rothko Chapel. And for us, it's a very interesting invitation uh, to bolt through the exploration we need to do interiorly on spiritual growth, our perceptions of each other. But mindful every day as we come out every time we come out of the doors of that sanctuary we look at the broken obelisk with this living legacy to dr king mindful of what the dean said that's about social justice our own commitment and how we prioritize our own lives and our perceptions about one another so again having this here it's great because we're in renovation but i will come back again many times to invite you to come back when the chapel reopens in june So tonight we gather here to deal with one of the most pressing issues of our time, and that is the intersection of climate change and social environmental justice. The need for our work together on this front is captured well in Dr. King's 1967 sermon when he said, and I quote, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated qualities. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. So then, in this spirit, we are faced with the question, how do we find the connections and the unity of purpose needed to counter our disconnections and lack of concern for one another that lead to toxic air, that lead to unhealthy industrial infrastructures, that lead to environmental injustice, and lead to global warming? To help us with our task this evening is one of Texas Southern's own leading academic uh, uh, leaders here at the university, Dr. Robert D. Bullard. His uh, bio is in your, uh, full bio is in your program, but let me just say a few words. uh, Dr. Bullard is a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy. He is often called the father of environmental justice. Dr. Bullard is the founder of the HBCU climate change consortium and author of numerous books that address environmental racism, urban land use, housing, transportation, sustainability, smart growth, climate justice, and community resilience. He has been honored in many corners as detailed in the program, including being named as one of the climate trailblazers by the Global Climate Action Summit one of the world's 100 most influential people in climate policy by apolitical. And in December of this last year, received the Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. We're just honored, Dr. Bullard, that you would find uh, the time to grace this uh, gathering and be our keynote speaker this evening. Thank you very much. Following Dr. Bullard's remarks, Dr. Richard M. Mazell Jr., We'll introduce our additional two speakers and moderate a panel discussion to further engage this evening's topic. Dr. Mizell is an associate professor of history and director of the graduate studies at the University of Houston. His research focuses on on historical understanding of health and healthcare politics, medical citizenship, environmentalism, and health, environmental technology, race, gender, and ethnicity in medicine, and the transformation of disease identity. I think we're in for a really uh, timely, engaging, and exciting evening. And with that, Dr. Bullard.
2: Good evening. I am a sociologist by training, and I'm an environmental sociologist. And I'm proud to say that I am an environmentalist. Welcome. My talk will uh, center on the intersectionality between civil rights, uh, environmental justice, and climate. From civil rights to environmental justice, the legacy of Dr. King. My job is to connect the dots. And some folks have said I'm pretty good at connecting dots. The word for today is intersectionality. I've written 18 books. Housing, transportation, energy, smart growth. Lots of topics, but it's 18 books, but it's just one book. Don't tell anybody. The central core that, that brings all those uh, books together, fairness, justice, and equity. Fairness, justice, and equity legacy of dr king 1968 i was a senior in college at alabama a m university and dr king is one of my heroes dr king went to memphis in 1968 in april on an environmental and economic justice civil rights issue garbage if you don't think garbage is an environmental issue you let the garbage workers go on strike and they did they had to call out the national guard dr king went to memphis for uh, justice for the the sanitation workers who were working on the conditions that were unequal, unjust, pay, unequal and unjust, and treatment, unequal and unjust. So the idea of justice and workers and environment intersected. 10 years later, 1978, I was two years out of graduate school. My first job was at Texas Southern University, long time ago. And I was asked to collect data for a lawsuit that was filed by my wife, uh, Linda McKeever Bullard, in support of a lawsuit that was brought by residents who lived in Northwood Manor in Northeast Houston, a predominantly black, middle-class suburban neighborhood. No, not a ghetto, not a poverty pocket. 85% of the residents in that neighborhood own their homes. But the fact is Houston doesn't have zoning, and the fact that there was nothing out there except black people housing in trees, and this company decided they wanted to put a landfill. I'm sorry, sanitary landfill. And we know there's nothing sanitary about a landfill. A landfill is where the garbage goes. When you bag it, can it, sit it out on the curb, it does not go to garbage heaven. It goes to some type of waste facility. My wife filed that lawsuit, Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation. Margaret Bean was the lead plaintiff. It was a class action lawsuit. This was the first lawsuit challenging environmental racism using civil rights law. I had 10 students in my research methods class and I told my students, we have a project. We have a study. And what we did, we basically designed the study. I designed a study and we worked on developing the protocol for doing this uh, study. There was no studies done before 1979, before we did the study. The law firm that was hired to, um, to defend the company, I won't call the name of the company, but the initials of BFI, headquartered in Houston. <laughs> and they hired this law firm that had three 400 lawyers, Fulbright and Jaworski, as in Fulbright Scholarship, you heard of that, Fulbright Scholarship? Or as in Leon uh, Watergate Jaworski. They hired blue chip law firm too. And then there was my wife. But again, uh, we had justice on our side. The name of the landfill was Whispering Pines, Sanitary Landfill. Whispering Pines sounds like a great subdivision. I'd love to live in Whispering Pines, but it was not, it was a landfill. The gentleman with his back turned, with the bullhorn, he was a young justice of the peace. Smart brother. Al Green, no, not the singer. The US Congressman from, did you hear what I said? Are you listening to what I'm saying? This is 1978. So the idea of challenging racism in the location of a solid waste facility and making it about justice, about a community. What we found is that five out of five of the city-owned landfills from the 30s up to 1978 were located in predominantly black neighborhoods in Houston. When I say predominantly black, that's like me saying my family is predominantly black. These are all black neighborhoods. How do we know Jim Crow did it? Five out of five, six out of eight of the city-owned incinerators were in black neighborhoods and three out of four of the privately owned landfills were in black neighborhoods. 82% of all the waste dumped, I'm sorry, disposed of in Houston from the 30s up until 1978 were in predominantly black neighborhoods even though blacks made up only 25% of the population. I've traveled all across this country, every state. I have never found black people or people of color getting 82% of the good stuff when we only make up 25%. So this was disparate impact, disproportionality, and it was environmental racism. 1982 was a year When we did the study in 1979, there was no movement. It was just an isolated study that we did, a a lawsuit that was filed. There was no national movement. It was not until 1982 when the people in North Carolina, in Warren County, decided that they were gonna resist this toxic waste to be dumped in their communities. Warren County, predominantly black, rural, uh, high percentage of poverty, became the receiving end of polychlorinated biphenyl dirt, uh, contaminated dirt to be pushed in their communities. People said no, people were arrested. Young people in 1982-83 put their bodies on the road, on the highway, trying to stop these trucks from bringing poison into their communities. Elementary, kid, elementary school kids, middle school kids, high school kids, not old enough to vote, but old enough to know that poison will kill you. Reminds you of something today. These young people now striking, not old enough to vote, but know climate change is a threat. PCBs will kill you. This is Dr. Benjamin Chavis leading that struggle and coining coining the term environmental racism. These are kids protesting, fighting. 1983 is when the General Accounting Office was forced to I'm sorry, persuaded to do a study at the behest of the Congressional Black Caucus to say, well, what's happening in the South? Is this just an isolated case in terms of Warren County or is this a systematic pattern of structural systemic racism? What the GAO found is that 75% of all the hazardous waste facilities in eight states in the South, region four, former Confederate states, slave states, 75% of the waste facilities were located in black communities even though blacks made up only 22.5% of the population. 1987 is when the United Church of Christ Commission of racial justice, a black civil rights organization based in in a church, a predominantly white church, decided that they needed to support a study, a national study of toxic waste and race. 1990 is when uh, I decided that I was gonna take the Houston study and expand it to Dallas and West Virginia and Louisiana and Alabama. And the book, Dumping and Dixie, was a book that I wrote. It was only 160 pages. And I finally got a publisher. And the publisher out of Boulder, Colorado, there's something about Boulder that's different. If you've ever been to Colorado, Boulder is mountain high, air, tofu, bean sprouts, marijuana. First <laughs> publisher that I could get to publish the book. They charged $25 for a 160-page book. I said, why are you charging that much money for a book? They said, we made it a textbook. I said, I didn't write it to be a textbook. I wrote it to get in the hands of people who are fighting, struggling, fighting racism. And then I got the first royalty check. <laughs> they made it a textbook, and it got adopted by a whole bunch of universities. And you know when the professor said, required book, what do you gotta do? <laughs> Buy it. Got the check and looked. I said, this is a whole lot of zeros. I went straight to the bank. So Dumping and Dixie was the first environmental justice book. We looked at this and we said there's something there. We said the environment, we have to redefine environment. It's where we live, work, play, worship, as well as what we learn, all that. And it's all that, as well as the physical and natural world. Environmental justice embraces the principle that all communities are entitled to equal protection of our environmental, housing, transportation, health, civil rights, human rights laws, and regulations. So it's not isolated, it's all connected. Intersectionality, but we also know that all communities are not created equal. There are some that are more equal than others. This is a book that I wrote, Unequal Protection, Environmental Justice and Communities of Color. This is a book that I got the Sierra Club to do. I said, you know, Sierra Club, You've been around since the 1880s. Teddy Roosevelt and all these other people. I said, It's time for you to do a real book about justice, fairness, struggle. I said, You, you do a great coffee table book. That was just a jab. And they said, Whoa, what do you mean? I said, It's time to do a book about justice. I said, Okay, what do you got? I already had the book written, I already had chapters in, in a box. I said, Well, here, we'll, I'll send it to you. This is the first book that Sierra Club did on environmental justice. Talking about green, talking about justice, and how you bring those things together. You know Sierra Club. We have been been working and trying to work with Sierra Club for many, many years, and they finally say, "Okay, we'll do this." Next thing I know, Sierra Club is giving me an award, and I'm like, "Oh, okay." And next thing I know, they name an award after me, the Environmental Justice Awards, I said, "Oh, okay. I, I didn't. What I do, I I don't do to get awards. <laughs> it's like..." OK, I will accept this award, but that ain't what I'm about. Just get the work done and help communities. 1991 is when we decided, as people of color, that we need to have our own summit to bring people of color together to define for ourselves environmentalism. Environmentalism is not this thing that's the, the, the domain, the unique domain of white middle class folks. No. The people who are on the front line and most impacted by environmental pollution are the ones that should be leading and defining and deciding. And so we had the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, and at this summit, we developed 17 principles. And the first principle is that people most affected must be in the room to speak for themselves and make decisions that impact their lives in their communities. That's self-determination. Nobody gives you, that right, that is earned, that is natural law. We developed the summit, we planned it for 500 people, A 1,000 people showed up, we we funded it, we were putting hotel rooms and airline tickets on our credit card, maxing them out, but we got people there, and anytime, this is 1991, we had a 1,000 people. Anytime you have 1,000 people at a summit in D.C., you gotta have a march to the capitol. You, that, that's just in the book. <laughs> we developed those principles, and we also got the Center for Disease Control. We were on a roll. Now, this is a long time ago. This is ancient history, 1991, to, to do a conference on environmental health disparities. It was called the National Minority Health Conference, the Center for Disease Control, to link environment and health. They had never done this before. We say it's time. 1992 is when we've been beating up the EPA, beating them up. And we finally got the EPA under the first Daddy Bush and William Riley, or the EPA, to produce a report, 1992. Environmental equity, reducing risk for all communities. We said, see, so we fought about this, this term equity, environmental equity, we said we don't want environmental equity, we're not talking about spreading poison equally among white communities like people go, we said that's not equity, that's madness. We want justice for all communities. But, we settle and say, well, compromise, put the title of the report, Environmental Equity, Reducing Risk for All Communities. We say, we know what we want, but if you're uncomfortable with, equ- with justice, use equity. 1994 is when we had the, uh, the, the transition team, Ben Chavis and I were on the Clinton Gore transition team, and we convinced the folks in the, at the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences to do a report and we got them to do a, a summit in Washington, second day of the summit. We got a call from the White House and they called us to say they're, we're gonna sign an executive order and we went to the White House, went to the Oval Office. Uh, this was in February, nice office by the way.
3: <laughs>
2: we got a National Academy to do a study. They found the same thing that we had been finding. Geographic footprint of, of segregation. This is a map of the 1820 Compromise. Look at the red map. I'm gonna go through these quickly because I'm running out of time. This is the 1860 map, the red. This is a slave states, blue, free. This is the 1950 Jim Crow map. Look at the footprint of issues. This is the 2010 map of where African Americans live, that green. This is the Latino Hispanic map in terms of that heavy South Florida and Southwest. This is a US map, 2010 people of color, that purple going across. Look at the, the southern tier of the country. Now there are a few folks up in Maine and Vermont, but most of the people of color, we're in that bottom half of the, of the country. This is a zip code inequality showing you the areas versus areas that are economically viable. Look at the, what is that, salmon, brown. That look at the heavy area going across. Look at the states. This is the poverty map, the poverty belt. That heavy blue area going across. Zip code impacts your health. Where you live can impact your quality of life. This is a map of the light area represent the lowest life expectancy. That map, this map of life expectancy is the same 1820 map. The same 1860 map. The same 1950 map. This is a map of the unhealthiest states or the unhealthiest areas. Look at that heavy red. This is a map of, this is the heart disease map. The redder the area, the more disease. This is the stroke belt. This is the cancer, lung cancer belt. Pollution and race maps the same way. Toxic waste and race, people of color more likely to live in those areas where geographically. This is a map of, of where the oil refineries are located. People who live, 52% of the people who live around these oil refineries are people of color. We know that in Houston. You don't have to have a map. This is the map of where the oil refineries are. There's 150 of them in 32 states. Children, this, this is not trick photography. 79, blacks are 79% more likely than whites to live where industrial pollution posed the greatest risk. Breathing other people's pollution. White people produce more pollution than they actually have to, Breed. People of color more likely to breathe white people's dirty air. I ain't making this up. it on people of color 46 states, people of color live with more pollution than whites. It's not a poverty thing. African Americans who make 50000 to $60,000 are more likely to live in neighborhoods that's more polluted than whites who make $10,000. I'm not making this up. How do you know? Because of residential segregation and house discrimination. 76% of the residents who live Around the most dangerous, polluting uh, power plants are people of color. So, closing dirty power plants is not just about climate, not just greenhouse gases, but those other coal pollutants NOx, SOx, PM uh, 2.5, and all the other dangerous facilities. Thank you. Here's a map of, of excess mortality because of these power plants coal fired power plants. Coal deaths, you know, King Coal. When we start co- closing these plants, people are healthier. More than 26,000 lives in the U.S. were saved between 2005 and 2016 uh, by these 300 plus coal plants closing. So closing these plants saves lives. You a whole oh, job, job, job. Well, the reason why the coal plants are closing rapidly is not because of environmental issues, it's because of natural gas is cheaper. Those jobs will never come back, Mr. President population most at risk, we know who they are, children. African American children are three times more likely to suffer from, uh, to die from asthma. I'm sorry, African Americans generally. African American children are more than 10 times more likely to die from asthma. So this is about life and death. When we close these cold plants, emergency room visits go down. When we close these plants, premature births go down. Pollution has been related to, linked to, uh, uh, kids who are in their wombs, mother's wombs, fetuses, when they become, when they grow, they're more likely to have um, uh, high, high blood pressure. So, so when we talk about health and disease, pollution also is linked to learning and, and GPA and all of that stuff. So we need to get busy making sure that our kids are not being dumped on. This is Houston. This is a photo taken by Brian, uh, Brian Powers. Cesar Savage High School, and we know who goes there. Will the government response to climate change be fair? We did a 300-page book, The Wrong Complexion for Protection, and the answer is two words. Hell no. I don't believe in climate change. We're in a state of denial. Yes, call Texas. If you look at the de- denial states, don't believe in climate change, look at the red. Look where the concentration of red is. No renewable electricity standards. Look at the, where the green is. Green is good, white is bad. That's not racial. <laughs> Status of climate adaptation plan. Look where the white is. No plans. Look where the green and the yellow. Look where the red, the highest electric, electricity bills. Look at the red. We spend more money on electricity than any other place. The region most vulnerable. The South is the most vulnerable region of the country in terms of hurricanes, storms, Uh, severe weather events. Look at the red. Billion-dollar storms, hurricanes. Climate change will exacerbate existing inequalities and worsen vulnerabilities of already marginalized population. Health impacts. We know all the health impacts that climate change will have. In terms of air quality, in terms of heat islands, urban heat islands effect, in terms of heat waves, in terms of people dying. Studies just came out showing the relationship between urban heat islands and racial redlining, just came out two days ago. The most vulnerable population live in the most vulnerable places. We saw it in Katrina, we saw it in Harvey. You map where the most impacted, it's the same map. Climate change will hit poor and people of color in the South the hardest. If we do nothing in terms of climate change, the US will lose 6% GDP. The South, the poorest, I told you this map, will lose 20%. The most vulnerable areas, red. Climate change widened, racial wealth gap. When the money is spent for recovery, down billion dollars to billion dollars disasters, most of the money goes to whites. White communities, on average, are better off by $126,000. People of color, communities, lose 29. Buyouts, go to mostly affluent communities, get bought out. Poor people get left behind. Managed retreat, this is counties buying out properties and houses in floodplains. most of the money go to where affluent white communities are. Last slide, sustainable communities in the era of climate change, we must address these equity issues. Equitable development, families below poverty, the, the widening wealth, health and income gap, addressing equity issues is a prerequisite for, for addressing climate resilient communities. I am hopeful, I've been working on this stuff for a long time, I'm hopeful. What gives me hope is that we have an intergenerational movement and young people, as I said before, who are not old enough to vote, who are working on these issues, fighting for environmental, economic, and climate justice. Thank you very much.
3: Good evening. Again, my name is uh, Richard Mazell. I'm an associate professor of history uh, in the Department of History at the University of Houston. I want to thank you again, Professor Bullard, for a wonderful presentation this evening. And I just want to provide a a few remarks as a historian. It's a dangerous thing to give a historian a microphone (laughs) in a captive audience. But I'll I'll make this brief. Um, As a historian, uh, my work focuses quite a bit on the long history of um, environmental justice issues, eco-criticisms, uh, questions of environmentalism, policy, and, and health. And one of the things that, uh, that I work on is, is how African Americans have uh, protested uh, the environment and provided an eco-criticism and have been conscious uh, of the environment for, for quite a bit of time, uh, throughout the 20th century, actually. And um, this, this protest ranges from uh, the struggle and desire for leisure spaces uh, of African American communities in places like Chicago uh, who were fighting for parks and, and green spaces, uh, places to, to play, uh, places to, to experience the, the environmental world uh, without uh, sort of pollution. And these places that would uh, signal to them uh, a better world and a better place. Um, these spaces were also important because they showed, uh, provided the framework that later activists would, would lean on, um, to eventually, uh, pose this environmental justice activism and criticism. Um, these questions are, are again, longstanding and they, they revolve around the desegregation of, of pools, um, access to, to waterways, uh, oceans. Um, one of the words I appreciated Dr. Bullard using is, is intersectionality. Right? And as a historian, I often think about this question of intersectionality. I've written about, for example, the Chicago 1919 race riot, um, which we often think of as, as an important moment of race relations, but not necessarily an important moment of, of eco-criticism. Um, as you, if you remember, the 1919 race riot occurs when a young boy wanders across the imaginary uh, Jim Crow line in, in Lake Michigan is stoned to death and this set, set off a couple of weeks worth of, of rioting. And so this, this battle over water and battle over who has access to water um, is longstanding. And so these questions of, of how we think about these issues from uh, access to pools, access to, to, to oceans, to civil rights organizations that emerged in the 1950s and 1960s in particular, um, like uh, the Black Panther Party, civil rights, black power um, uh, organizations like the, civil, like the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords Party, um, who were battling the, the ubiquitous danger of lead poisoning um, in New York, Chicago, Newark, Baltimore, uh, inner city housing, and how they were fighting against this, uh, this environmental toxin in, in their neighborhood uh, set the stage for what would become uh, the environmental justice movement of the 1970s and, and 1980s. Um, very quickly, sometimes people ask me how I became interested in uh, environmental justice. I grew up in in Raleigh, North Carolina, and in Raleigh, North Carolina, we didn't get a lot of snow, but we did get these sort of very dangerous ice storms. And these storms would uh, uh, accumulate, uh, the ice would accumulate on the power lines, push them down and knock out the power. sometimes a week at a time and for kids it was it was all fun until it was you know time to go to bed and you had to go to sleep when it was cold outside and you had to help your father chop the wood and put it in the fireplace and anyone who's ever had to sleep in front of a fireplace knows that there's really only one person that's warm in front of a fireplace and that's the person directly in front of the fire everybody else is freezing to death right and as the youngest somehow never somehow another I never made it to the front you know near the fireplace but I remember my parents, who were um, civil rights activists, uh, at North Carolina Central University in the 1960s, um, talking about how Carolina Power and Light would always wait um, until the other neighborhoods were taken care of before they came to our neighborhood in Southeast Raleigh, which was a strong middle class, working class neighborhood, but predominantly black. And I remember the adults, my parents. Uh, uh, criticizing the city and, and criticizing the, the governor and, and the um, municipal services for that delay. And that infused in me sort of this, this interest in environmental politics that I have carried with me um, throughout uh, my career. And so I'm happy to, this evening, to, to moderate this very important discussion uh, of Dr. Bode's work Um, but also by our wonderful panelists, who will provide uh, some additional remarks, uh, beginning with Bridget Murray, who is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization Achieving Community Tasks Successfully, um, followed with uh, Yvette uh, Arolano, who serves as a policy and research and grassroots advocate with uh, Tejas. And um, also you will be able to find their uh, entire bios in your, in your handouts as well. So we'll start now with uh, Ms. Murray. Hello
4: to all of you. Can you hear me? I'd just like to say I'm honored to be a part of this panel discussion today as we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his foresight and vision to recognize and address the social justice and environmental justice issues that are threaded together. Um, I was going to give a quote from uh, Dr. King, but it's already been provided to you. So what I'd like to say under this umbrella of climate change, more people are paying attention to what is actually happening on this earth, primarily from the viewpoint of weather events and changing ecosystems. But for fence line communities, we're dealing daily with toxic exposure. My role on this panel is to give a local face to a fence line community, Uh, and for those who are not familiar with the term of fence line, it's basically speaking to communities that are generally within three miles of a company and is directly affected by either noise, odors, chemical emissions, traffic, parking, and operations of that company. For us, that fence line community is Pleasantville. Uh, We're on the east side of Houston, 2.2 miles from the port of Houston. Uh, our ship channel. And uh, as Dr. Bullard mentioned, your zip code can say a lot, and we're in zip code 77029. So most of the statistics that Dr. Bullard shared with us tonight uh, speaks to a lot of the commonalities uh, for fence line communities that are exposed to hazardous uh, chemicals on a daily basis. So for the Pleasantville story, our community was developed in 1948. It's a planned African-American community. We have over 1,000 homes, 3,000 residents, and we're a majority-minority community. About 37% of our residents make below $25,000 a year, and the Houston average is 27,000 a year. I'm sorry, the Houston average is 27%. And coming into our community, three of our four entrances, you cross over a rail line. Through eminent domain, 610 freeway was correct uh uh, created uh that would allow traffic to the port and that happened in 1962 TxDOT designated um, this route as the hazardous route so we not only have the exposure of the increased traffic we also are on the hazardous route there's a port Houston dredge site on our south boundary and there was a breach there in 1956 we have three archived Superfund sites within one mile of our community. There was a warehouse fire in 1995 that lasted three weeks. anheuser Bush developed it near our community and uh, over the years they decided the best place for the trucks to enter into their lot was right across from our community. So it sometimes blocks our entrance into our community. We've had flooding events related to Allison and Harvey, and one year after Harvey, uh, our community was identified uh, through the report that was shared with the city, where only about 17% of the claims from our community were addressed. We're 4.7 miles from a quality grocery, and we all have our own definition of what is a grocery, so I'm gonna use that terminology, quality. For hospitals, and access to healthcare, we're about 7 to 7.2 miles from a hospital, and that's LBJ. Um, during a recent presentation to our community by the University of Texas Environmental Law Clinic, uh, based on 2017 de- uh, data, we have some 11 facilities within two miles emitting large amounts of pollution near our community. And because of our traffic exposure, The primary air pollutants, uh, Dr. Bullard mentioned some of those, particulate matter, carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxide, benzene, and other toxics. And with that comes health concerns, uh, asthma, uh, aggravation of heart and lung disease, low birth weight infants, childhood leukemias, premature death. So you can see that our exposure to pollution really is a health issue for us and very little is being done statewide and we see so much happening now at the national level or federal level where uh, protections that we assumed we had were no longer uh, protected in many areas. So how does a community mitigate recurring toxic exposures? Well, we know that if we do nothing, nothing will happen for our benefit. So in Pleasantville, we've accepted that challenge to pursue solutions. So over the last six years uh, with our nonprofit organization, we have basically been working with other nonprofit groups uh, here in the, in the city, as well as we're now part of the consortium that Dr. Bullard mentioned earlier, where we're actually working with um, academia, various uh, HBCU uh, colleges and universities, Uh, throughout the Gulf Coast area and we're working together in identifying solutions uh, being able to have direct resources with individuals who are familiar with what's happening in the environmental area and to be working with the uh, with dr. Bullard is is another fine example of how communities need resources available to them to address some of these day-to-day situations so, uh, Pleasantville has, has been able to receive a grant also where we now have installed air monitors in our community. So that was a big win for us. Because if we are totally relying on information that's provided to us by TCEQ, um, we will not uh, receive the benefits that we, because no, no air monitors are actually placed in communities. Uh, The other benefit to this also is that it gives us the opportunity as a community to work more directly with city and county resources because we all found out with the recent ITC fire that the county was woefully prepared for the type of situation that was going on with that chemical plant. So we want to have further conversation with you about solutions and how to work together um, in when we know that the envirom- environmental justice is a real issue. Thank you.
5: My name is Yvette Arellano, and I work as a policy research and grassroots advocate with Texas Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services, an organization that's been doing this work for about uh, 20 years, an organization that onboarded me as a young volunteer in 2015 trying to fight HR 702, which opened the floodgates to oil and crude exports. So my presentation is going to revolve around what does this mean for our state? Uh, Our organization has for years worked with a community of Manchester, a community that is about 98% minority community, 86% Latino community, 30% linguistically isolated, according to the last American Community Survey census data. But the local elementary school, which has better numbers, has identified 64% of the population uh, of their students at, as English language learners, meaning the community or uh, students are learning English for the very first time. This is part of HISD's bilingual schools program. So this image that you have in front of you is a, the, one of the most current and most up to date uh, numbers as far as active oil well drilling and different formations throughout the United States. What you see as that big blue blob west of Texas is the Permian Basin. The Permian Basin in west Texas spans throughout west Texas over into New Mexico, creating the largest formation with, in this chart, over 415 active drilling wells, a formation that is actively feeding the expansion projects ranging from the east end of Houston, 52 miles all the way towards Texas City, Kima, Galveston. And if anybody's driven down I-10 East and 225, you've seen uh, the type of industry that we're talking about, but not the community sandwiched in between. Uh, the communities that are left forgotten underneath freeways and in between this infrastructure, uh, communities that face exposures like during the chemical fires that they faced the day before, um, St. Patrick's Day at the ExxonMobil fire, or the day of St. Patrick's Day with the ITC fire, a fire that led to a formation of a toxic chemical plume that stretched about 47 miles long, 17 miles wide. So my presentation will cover a bit of how these formations like uh, the Permian Basin make Texas a key state when talking about climate change, greenhouse gas emissions and our future towards a just transition (coughs) the other thing I'd like to share is that the image that you see right next to it shows that one uh, the Permian Basin is actually roughly about the size of Oklahoma the only difference between Oklahoma and the Permian Basin is that The Permian Basin Shell is a three-dimensional formation that has multiple layers of hydrocarbons inside of it, everything from oil to natural gas that is being pitched to communities across the nation as a transition fuel when, in fact, it is also leading to dangerous and hazardous infrastructure throughout the country. And what does this mean for our health? Communities like Pleasantville, communities like the Fifth Ward, like Manchester, and cities like Baytown and Deer Park and LaPorte uh, have to face these types of health hazards. So the first top, you know, three or two are about uh, ozone. And ozone is very easy to talk about in cities across the nation. A little more difficult conversation is around PAHs. Uh, which is polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PCBs, CO2, methane, Uh, those types of chemicals creating respiratory issues, brain neurological and developmental damage, uh, increased cardiac disease, failures of the organ system uh, and even issues with reproductive justice. In fact, I'm a 32-year-old person who faces reproductive Uh, issues. So having a family for me is very questionable and that's not something that is uncommon in our communities. Sterility has often been a tactic of isolating communities and just decimating them whether it's intentional or unintentional, which is why in the conversations that we're about to have it's so key that we keep in mind what are key ingredients for success. this is what you get for doing a presentation on a platform that's not PowerPoint. But you need to build relationships. You know, for folks who are in this room who are thinking, what can I do? How can I get involved in the conversations over rural or urban communities, uh, people of color communities or predominantly white rural communities that are affected by pipelines and also refineries? You need to build relationships. You can't be a student or a very eager uh, academic, just flooding into the area, attempting to address the issues and concerns of the community. Because unless you know folks in that community who are physically struggling with these day-to-day issues, then you're not going to get the best achievable answers or investigations from a group of students that are brainstorming, I wonder how these people are affected. Uh, the second one is on-the-ground experience. Communities welcome folks uh, with open arms. All of our community-based organizations suffer from a major issue, and that major issue is capacity. We are one, two people who are in the community. We are a group of four very interested neighbors. We are a group of five folks who met at church. Those are the folks who run grassroots organizations. We're a married couple who has been retired, uh, whose fathers passed away from cancer, a lot like my directors over at Tejas. Active leaders and active leadership is definitely an important key. And that type of organizing doesn't just start with organizations that are already existence, but student groups like we've all heard and seen and also active citizens who are part of civic associations. And you don't have to live in the community in order to get engaged. But just know that joining a civic association in one community is very different from joining one in another. That it's important that when projects develop, that you're not taking funds and resources from affected communities in order to fund, let's say, a national night out or another event, but instead partnering up like the Rothko Chapel has done with TSU and all of our organizations. And then the last year's critical response. You know, we talked about a couple of the events that happened and left out so many more. We didn't talk about the Exxon olefins fire that happened. We didn't talk about September 20th when nine barges were jammed across the Ship Channel Bridge that damaged valuable infrastructure It shouldn't just be looked as infrastructure, just like you heard Bridget mention. Her community is for the most part blockaded by rail. The community of Manchester only has two unimpeded exits. That means if anything were to happen in these communities, imagine a flush of 3,000 people attempting to leave a community with that little of exits. We haven't talked about how the American Chemistry Council has predicted that over $204 billion is going to go into over 334 projects across the nation. And that means that critical response, the last one, is so invaluable. Where were we during the ITC fire? Where were we during the Port Neches fire? So to think that all of our work is being simply affected at the local level is a misunderstanding. Environmental justice communities and the the entire concept of environmental justice that was developed here has gone and spanned across countries and nations. It has activated communities in the south of Brazil, communities in the global south, communities in Mozambique, which by the way, both Mozambique and the Permian Basin are facing massive projects by ExxonMobil in fracking in order to develop and increase infrastructure. And all of this work, all of these principles, all of this coalition work then affects documents internationally. What you see over... On your left is going to be the Rio de Janeiro Agreement of 1992 that emphasized the need to strengthen our recognition of indigenous communities and support them, making sure that we recognize the laws and rights of nature, not just living alongside nature in and of itself. We have to practice not oppressing the natural formations that live around us, bodies of water areas of land and our invaluable clean air. On the other end is the Paris adoption agreements that also have included in them the recognition of the rights of nature, how women and children are the most invaluable people and they need to be protected because of how vulnerable their systems are. Now you go back and you see how this could potentially affect our future. How are we protecting current and future generations from reproductive issues? Because these chemicals that are entering our bodies, when they do enter them, things like benzene and 1,3-butadiene, yes, there is a flush. You can sweat, you can vomit, you can urinate, and you can cry. All of these are pathways to get some chemicals out. But we don't identify that some of them stay stored in the bones causing osteoporosis and weakening of the bone structure like benzene does. Benzene being one of the chemicals that we were exposed to during the ITC fires with a plume that spanned over eight cities. Now, I also want to leave you with this thought. And the thought is that these chemicals create generational issues and health effects. Even Harris County and Judge Hidalgo identified that communities won't see the effects or health effects for 10 years from now. But we're not at a loss. Community organizations like Axe and like Tejas have been in litigation. In 2015, we, along with Earth Justice as our council, had the refinery rule standards that attempted to close some of the most dangerous loopholes facing refineries and petrochemical facilities, that just a couple of years ago, we were able to change Valero from emitting over 512 tons of hydrogen cyanide, a known chemical warfare weapon, from 512 now to simply over 100. But I do want to remind you, that they were inherently emitting 52 tons of hydrogen cyanide into a community, and no community should be exposed to these. That right now we have an active Title VI litigation piece in the hands of both TCQ and the EPA in order to force them to have English and Spanish and any dominant language, whether it's Vietnamese, I mean, we have all seen how many languages are housed in Houston. And it's important that those documents are translated because how will people show up to these meetings, have comments that are invaluable to the entire process if they're inherently excluded because they do not understand the words that are coming out of people's mouths. So as we face our future, I want you to know that not all is at a loss, but it's important to activate, not simply at the voting rolls, but also locally, also looking at our own backyard here in Houston, Texas, along the east end of Houston, home of the largest petrochemical complex in the nation, second largest in the world. Thank you.
3: Thank you, uh, Bridget and uh, Ms. Arello for for those wonderful comments. to do now is move directly into a little bit of a moderated discussion, um, and, and this first round of questions will, will be directed at the panel as a whole, and, uh, and these are our broader questions. So my first question for, for the panel that all three of you can uh, address is what has and has not worked in addressing environmental justice health issues from a policy activist and informational uh, standpoint? Um, So if you can sort of lay out for us uh, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, um, and what we might need to uh, change in terms of changing the narrative, dealing with uh, ignorance making, um, but also addressing these very important and real issues uh, that are on the table.
5: I'd like to take a stab at that. So a lot of people ask, like, why is environmental justice its own thing? Why can't you get along with the large national green organizations? And believe me, we've tried. Um, Just a little background context. In March of 1991, and you can Google this on your own, there was a letter called the Letter to the Big Ten. And it was one of many attempts in order to address the injustices that large green mainstream organizations like Friends of the Earth, like the Sierra Club, like the Environmental Defense Fund, have basically... Uh, participated in an uh, maybe unintentional oppression of our communities where uh, they would litigate and this is strong history and important history where they would litigate uh, on behalf of affected communities and settle out of court obviously a lot of corporations have so many resources and funds that settling is not new or surprising Uh, but they would settle for pieces of land They would settle for pieces of land and allow the contamination to continue, and the letter of the Big Ten actually has six different cases where community members stepped up and included their voice as to how they were uh, thrown under the bus. Now the mainstream national green organizations have been trying to rectify that through years of collaborations and support, uh, but we definitely need them to sign on to agreements like you know the principles of environmental justice and also the hamas principles of democratic organizing that make sure that any process moving forward is inclusive of communities that are most affected including communities of color and low income communities so something that hasn't worked is allowing systems to continue and maintain the same path that they have
4: I'd like to suggest that what has worked is within communities, increasing the amount of information that is being shared directly with residents. Um, As Yvette mentioned, that over the years there have been many examples where organizations have come in because they've had grant dollars, and they come in, they swoop in, they do their study, they're gone, and the community is not better for it. So the idea that with grassroots organizations that we're able now to change, if you will, that dynamic somewhat and so that communities can then become more engaged and can take on more issues, learn more about strategic planning, learn more about developing their own strategies and working directly with academia, working directly uh, with other uh, grassroots organizations and individuals to understand that a lot of what we face, even though we continue to use the word equity, there's not a lot of equity in what's happening to our communities. So we have to take on more leadership and more responsibility in that area.
2: Okay. Well, let me just briefly uh, say what has not worked. Uh, waiting for the government to respond to Decades of neglect, of racism, of inequality when it comes to environment, uh, when it comes to land use planning, etc., has not worked uh, for the simple reason that all communities are not created equal, and the government does not see what is local, state, federal does not see some communities as having uh, worth. So, so it means that what has worked is that when communities organize themselves and mobilize and come together and form partnerships coalitions uh, across bar- broad-based um, and, and, uh, and reach out and develop true partnerships, whether it's community-university partnerships or whether it's a network with grassroots-led organizations or whether it's legal. Uh, and we say when you do litigation, and I've served as an expert witness on dozens of lawsuits across the country, uh, 30 years ago we would get our butts kicked. But today we win more than we, we lose. Uh, we say, if it's a legal case, lawyers on tap, not on top. And the communities who hire lawyers, the, communities, uh, the community uh, leaders and organizations, they're the boss. Um, what has worked is that communi- we have um, uh, changed the dynamics of funding to some extent, not even close to perfect, but, but identifying organizations that have, that have the wherewithal, the need, and the capacity to handle funds uh, we're we're now getting some foundations uh, to to start to fund need as opposed to funding uh, people they like and people who look like them. Um, and so the idea of doing more research, having community-based participatory research, having communities train and and uh, with the, with the capacity to do uh, and lead research and partner with other kinds of whether it's academics or organizations uh, that have expertise to do those partnerships uh, in a way that can uh, bring authenticity to the results and having co-authored reports and articles and books, et cetera, that's a big difference as opposed to somebody parachuting in, grabbing the data and writing an article or book and and don't even say thank you.
5: I'd like to also add a, a word that you mentioned in the beginning, Dr. Bullard. Uh, intersectionality that's worked working with schools working with scientists working with the uh, local county officials uh, if and when that's possible has worked tremendously we have a partnership with fur High School and for those of you who don't know uh, fur high school is the first environmental jo- uh, justice high school in the entire nation give it give a round of applause for our youth. It's essential that we work with youth and teachers, right, uh, in the intergenerational movement because our older generations hold all of the wisdom. They hold background context, historical context, relationships that can then be passed on to younger generations. Ideas then don't have to be rehashed out that haven't worked, but new strategies between generations I mean, it, it's been incredible to see young people move throughout the world, but also uh, having elders guide them in that process is beautiful.
3: Ms. Murray, um, I'm not sure everyone knows about Pleasantville um, in, in the room. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about your work with the Pleasantville community and the environmental uh, difficulties that you've faced as a community.
4: Well, historically, uh, Pleasantville uh, was developed in 1948. It was a planned African-American community. Um, And uh, being an individual whose family moved to Pleasantville in 1957, it has a long history uh, within that community. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. So we saw uh, through the Civil Rights Movement, we saw our neighbors are uh, being involved in the civil rights movement. We actually uh, had a resident from our community that became the first black council member for the city of Houston, uh, Judson Robinson, Jr. Um, so, so Pleasantville has a long history uh, in recognizing the, the fight for the vote and having um, a reputation of voting almost 99 to 100% as a block what gave the community a lot of power. So to have lived in a community at one time that saw quite a few successes, and and as many uh, traditional uh, minority communities we've on the de- decline, that it becomes important for those of us who grew up in the community, who still live in the community, to take on that, ba- that uh, mantle of leadership and deal with what is our current civil rights issue, and that's the environment. So we know that we're being exposed um, uh, to various air toxins, and working with others, and even in the community strategic planning, bringing back resources that we know that will work, uh, so that the community is engaged and involved, and so that is the direction that we're going in. Okay,
3: and uh, Dr. Bullard, um, for the undergraduates in the room, I um, mean, you, you sort of make this connection between uh, the civil rights movement and um, the environment, uh, the environmental justice movement of the 1970s and, and 1980s. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that that continuity uh, between um... the civil rights movement and the environmental justice movement scholars who talk about the civil rights movement uh... talk about uh... the movement as the mother of all movements that, that led to uh... the new left uh... black power movement and, and the environmental justice movement so I was wondering if you could talk just a bit more about some of those strategies in that continuity
2: well, uh... first of all every uh... let me be clear every social movement that has been successful in this country in terms of justice movement, has had a strong youth and student component with its civil rights, peace and justice, anti-war, women's movement. Uh, You start naming all those movements. They've had young people. Young people have have seeded um, all those movements for the simple reason that they have the energy, they have the optimism, uh, and they're not jaded by, well, you can't do that. Um, And so uh, (laughs) I was once uh, young. Uh, I came out of the 60s. And, and we thought we could do anything. We were fearless. And we marched, I grew up in Alabama. And, and if you look at the history, Alabama was not the most progressive place uh, to grow up in in the, in the early 60s. So, so understanding that even as a freshman or a sophomore, there's so much work that you can do. And if you look around in terms of on the campus being active and also taking that activism from the campus to the community, making that connection with organizations that are working on issues Uh, and making sure that that you join something and that that something can have uh, some type of impact. And with this whole idea of of, um, greening of our movements, I mean, whether you're dealing with issues around housing or transportation or food security or issues around parks and green space, urban gardening. I mean, you could put justice in anything. You know, I said I wrote 18 books. A lot of them got justice in the title, but the first sentence or the first paragraph in all those books got justice in it. Dr. Johnson and I wrote a book called Just Transportation. <laughs> Raise your hand. Yeah, so we wrote another book called Highway Robbery. <laughs> Not the same book, kinda, but the subtitle is "Translation: Racism, New Routes to Equity." So, so the work that young people can do in the classes that you doesn't matter what area, what discipline, the justice component, the equity component can get infused into journalism, biology, hydrology, epidemiology, economics. You start naming this stuff: criminal justice. So, that's how we make those connections and. And ultimately, breathing is something that most of us would like to do. We don't decide next Tuesday we're not going to breathe. So clean water, most of us drink water, eat, you know, food, most of us are concerned about it. You know, I used to, when I used to be in California, I used to ask students at, at UCLA, and It there'd be 40 students in there, it might be two blacks so, and four Hispanics, ask how many environmentalists and 80 percent raise their hand. Environmentalists. Then, then I, uh, I moved to Atlanta, at Clark Atlanta. I got 30 students in my class at Clark Atlanta, H- uh, HBCU. 30 students. I asked, Who's environmentalists? They'd be looking at each other. I said, Let me f- reframe it. How many drink water? How many eat food? How many breathe air? And then I said, Framing. How many are concerned about what's in the air, what's in the food, what's in the water? They said, Yeah, yeah. I said, You're an environmentalist, you just don't know it. So how we frame issues can bring more people to the table. When we talk about environmental justice, it brings a lot of people to the table and say, oh, I see what you're talking about. It just, just ain't about bird watching and 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 tree hugging.
3: Yeah, it's that too. <laughs> so uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm teaching, I'll, I'll ask my students, um, how many of you have grandparents that are still with us? And, and some of them will raise their hands. And how many of them are over 80 or 85, what we call the, the very old? Um, and... Um, that's not my term, that's their term, um, and uh, and I'll ask them, what will, what are they going to do if there's a hurricane or, or a tornado? And, and they begin thinking, right, because they may not have sort of thought about anybody in their family as vulnerable before, um, thinking about their, their elderly uh, grandparents and you know this conversation revolves around you know a lot of aspects of of environmental uh, injustice or racism including heat waves and and floods Um, so my question to the to the panel uh, and maybe we'll start with uh, Ms. Arello first is uh, what are some of the uh, special needs groups or populations that uh, we may not have been thinking about um, in terms of addressing these questions of climate change and, and environmental justice?
5: communities throughout the South have been uh, historically excluded from this conversation. And I would also say that immigrant communities have been largely left out. Uh, these are communities that bring with them still, you know, uh, they hold on to values like v- the Vietnamese communities along the coast are still for the most, or, or have a strong fisherfolk folk community. Uh, folks that were devastated throughout the BP oil spill. Uh, there are communities that raise livestock and our food. Uh, folks who work inside basically picking all of the food that all of us can enjoy eating at our tables. Uh, so farm workers who are affected by pesticides and dump sites. Um, students have largely been left out too, but I'd like to specifically focus on students with special needs that during uh, the ITC fire when we were working with multiple moms whose children had special needs felt the most affected. because those of you who know children who have special needs they need stability and if there is a large disaster that brings them a lot of stress and mental well mental distress but they were also the first to face nosebleeds uh, because they were a vulnerable population. So farm workers, uh, students and populations with special needs, immigrant communities, and uh, folks who already suffer, including future generations, because genetic mutations are so very real.
4: Well, I'll add to that list um, as far as uh, groups that we have a concern about Uh, and I'm just going to take this from um, what happened in our community post Harvey just trying to assist individuals with evacuations so poverty in and of itself is a special need because if you can't afford resources uh, so we have you know station weathermen weather personnel telling us all the time it's coming it's coming but we have people who can't prepare because they don't have the funds to buy those canned goods or bring in those extra resources into their home to, to be prepared for staying inside for those extra days. Uh, the elderly who um, have been abandoned by their family or they don't have any family. Individuals with uh, pre-existing conditions, so I have a, a nursing background and so this whole emphasis on, an, on the environment is really driven by my own personal experience working in the healthcare area. Mm-hmm. And so you have people with those respiratory conditions, cardiac, neurological dis- disabilities. So we have to take into consideration all of those people with those special needs because they are truly the ones that are harmed when, in those situations.
3: Yeah, Dr. Bullard and I were talking earlier about uh, diabetes and the diabetic populations during Hurricane Katrina and Harvey and how they're a special needs population and that many who were uh, uh, in the uh, relief camps um, and spaces in, in, in Hurricane Katrina did not have diabetic friendly foods and insulin and, and sort of the things that would help them uh, self-manage their, their, their disease, so that's important.
5: I had one last one, and that's uh, the, the homeless population, because while so many of us can go inside and shelter in place, the homeless cannot, or sorry, they, uh, the unhoused, and other better words. But it's a population that often gets ignored.
2: Yeah, the, 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 the population that's most vulnerable before the storm, uh, they're the population that's most vulnerable after. It's very predictive. If you don't have transportation, um, personal transportation, we saw that in Katrina, and it's, we, but we saw that long before Katrina. People who get left, people who get left behind economically in a, in, a, in a city that's spread out and don't have a car and the jobs are away, you get left behind without a, a storm or a hurricane or a flood. So vulnerability oftentimes is, is exacerbated by the inequality that exists. And so so disasters basically worsen the marginalization. So, 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 so it's not rocket science. And so we have lots of scientists, social scientists that can predict who's most likely to get left behind and, and who gets left behind every time is the same category of folks. That needs to change. We have to change that. Who, who gets left behind when it comes to recovery? We can predict who's, get, who's not gonna get money. Who's gonna, that 70% uh, success rate in getting the recovery dollars, what's with that? We know who's gonna get left behind. It's the same communities that get left behind when it comes to mortgage loans and, and the kinds of improvement, home improvement loans and those kinds of things. It's the same uh, discrimination built, structural inequality built into the, to, the, to, the, to the infrastructure That has to change. If we don't change that, we're going to still see the same kind of thing, uh, the climate gentrification of the people who are going to get the high ground and push the people out, and that's the kind of thing we're fighting for right now. So it's not about just climate change. It's not just about greenhouse gases and parts per million. It's also about justice. There's a movement called climate justice, and that's a response to climate change and the organizations that are just dealing with climate change are not dealing with the justice. We have, to, we have a whole movement that's built around that globally. Thank you
3: so much. Um, at this point, we will move to uh, the question and answer and sort of <laughs> so participatory. Uh, between uh, you and the panel. Uh, we do have a few minutes. Um, we have a couple of mics uh, that will be roaming around. Um, I would just ask that you keep your, uh, your questions uh, short and an emphasis on, on question uh, that you can direct um, um, to each of the panelists. And please provide us your, your name and uh, institutional affiliation as well. Thank you.
0: I'm Robert Harding. i'm president pres- uh, President of uh, RST Bioscience uh, Agriculture Consultant. Um, in terms of injustice and uh, food access, the human body is an incredible instrument. It can ward off a lot of different assaults from environmental uh, assaults from the environment. However, you have to have the basic neat uh, tools to do that. that that means nutrition. Now, access to quality nutrition is, One thing that certainly exacerbates all these things, you don't have good food to ward off some of these things to protect yourself from the environmental assaults that you're constantly being faced with. That makes it even worse, it exacerbates the problem to to the nth degree. What are you, how does food injustice fit into the whole scheme of environmental injustice, food access injustice? Thank you. Food justice,
2: parks justice, uh, health equity, all these things are inter- interrelated. Uh, there is a food justice movement uh, that, that's part of our environmental justice movement. And it's, it's bigger than urban gardens, uh, urban agriculture. Uh, also the quality of kinds of food, uh, the kinds of land use planning, so that we don't just have you know, all of the, you know, the food, um, s- food swamps, f- all of the unhealthy stuff in our neighborhoods and we don't have, have the access. So uh, yes, that's part of it. We can map, see what we have now, we can map all of the areas that intersect and look at how those things are not in the communities and how we're gonna to work to get more parks and green space, green canopy to cut down on the urban heat islands. We're gonna get more uh, grocery st- full service grocery stores, farmers markets, urban gardens. We're gonna get more nature trails. All those kinds of things, that's the umbrella. Environmental justice is more than just dealing with the negative externalities and toxic. It's bigger than toxics. It's also about those things that make us healthy, livable, sustainable, and resilient.
5: When I hear about uh, water, because I did, sorry, food, I think about water and how water access and superficial bodies of water, including rivers, uh, creeks, bayou systems, are heavily affected because food is aquatic life, fish, right, it's livestock, and it's plant life. So if our communities lack proper, clean water, We cannot properly grow food. We're talking about facing a resource crunch and scarcity, specifically around potable water. And that's not simply isolated to this country, but it is a global scarcity that we are going to face. So if we don't start centering our conversations around how the fossil fuel industry and extractive industry has polluted and continues to contaminate and privatize our freshwater systems, we are basically sacrificing the future generations of this country. Because that map you saw earlier in the Permian shell, Right beneath all of that fracking is the Ogallala water aquifer, one of the 10 largest aquifers in this entire world. We're talking about fossil water that is non-rechargeable, meaning no body of water is continuing to feed those water deposits. So if we ever face mass contamination, that is the water that this entire country, along with anything that's left in the Great Lakes, that's what we're going to be left with. So we need to start protecting our potable water. Good evening, and and my name is Jaime Gonzalez. I'm from The Nature Conservancy. And um, thank you very much, first of all, for your your courageous work in communities and, and serving our people. My question is, are there learnings or tactics from the civil rights movement that are not being fully utilized, those learnings, in the climate justice movement or in the environmental justice movement bully go ahead dr bully
2: wrote a book on that (laughs) well let me just let me just say that these mature movements that are um basically uh, set up in a corporate type, I'm talking environmental organizations that are with boards of directors and staffs and, and, and multi-million dollar budgets, um, they are slow to learn, um, and I don't want to overgeneralize because all, of, all of the organizations are not the same, there's some heterogeneity, but generally these organizations are slow to change when it comes to addressing racial justice and equity. When you talk about racial justice, a lot of the organizations uh, uh, get nervous and they, they, wanna, they appear somehow that we, uh, as a person of color, are attacking them for not understanding the historical legacy of racism, of classism, of, of sexism that embodies the, the way that resources get allocated and power gets distributed so so there are some lots of lessons that could be learned in terms of democratizing not to say that the civil rights organizations or the civil rights movement was perfect because it had lots of sexism and whatever but to understand that to to allow um the transition of intergenerational leadership to to move forward uh in in terms of young young women uh, and young uh, people of color uh, and, and to, to, to take on these uh, issues and to, and to stand with our people of color organizations and fight um, for more resources and a more equitable dis- uh, distribution of resources that flow predominantly to the organization, even when the demographics are changing right and left. And i give you, uh, uh, Dr. Dorceta Taylor at the University of Michigan is, is doing some fantastic work in looking at uh, where the money goes, the green dollars goes. You know, even, you know, you look at 2002, uh, people of color organizations got 4.5%. 2018 is something like 15%. So if it's 15%, then the other 15 from 100 leaves, what, 85? 85 Other 85% is going to the white organizations. And, and what we're saying is that, it's about sharing. The 2042, the magic year that says, oh, the country will be people, majority people of color. We shouldn't be waiting to 2042 to get this transition. We need to be making sure that our organizations of color are resourced and we don't have a lot of the organizations out there, predominantly white organization, fighting to say, let's talk about getting resources into the organizations that are on the ground, fence line, ground level zero. We don't have a lot of them doing that because it means it's. They were seeing it as zero sum gain. Or oh, if you're going to give you more money over here from where the money is, that means that we have going to lose something. And what we say that if the, if the money should flow to need and to those communities that have the greatest kinds of environmental issues, otherwise it's a, it's a, it's a forest. It's basically maintaining you know, organizations and maintaining memberships and maintaining magazines that has to change. Not a whole lot has changed over the last 20 years.
5: I would add that the civil rights movement established the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the EPA followed in suit by establishing Title VI complaints that are that are basically communities standing up and saying we are disproportionately being affected as communities of low resource and communities of color, and that's. A structure inside of the epa under this administration and for years now it's been taken apart to the point where communities don't even see it as a viable option anymore so title six has been so invaluable and we need to strengthen and protect it the second i would say is taking to the streets Uh, During the civil rights movement, we took to the streets. Now people turn on the news and say, well, somebody else is doing it, so I'm safe. Let's rely on those 20 students out there instead of going out and joining them. During the civil rights movement, if a group of protesters or activists or, or community members were hosed down, attacked by dogs, more community members showed up the next day to show that we have power in numbers. Last I would say is protecting our rights to protect ourselves. We are seeing an attack on organizers, communities, protesters. It is becoming illegal to take to the streets. It is currently illegal to block any pathway that has a proposed pipeline in its path because that's future energy infrastructure. In the state of Texas, we cannot create an ordinance that bans fracking. We saw that happen in Denton, Texas. Why? Because the state loves saying states' rights, states' rights, local rights, until it gets to the local level. Then you have no rights. So why did Denton get defeated? Because the state said that that is a national resource, that oil is a national resource, and we cannot get in the way of energy or national energy.
3: All right, thank you. Um, we'll have more time to to interact with uh, the panelists uh, later. I we'll now have uh, the closing words.
1: Well, I'm going to start where I began, which is thank you, Texas Southern University, for hosting this year's Rothko Chapel, Dr. Martin Luther King birthday observance and celebration. Uh, the history of this, uh, event has been, I think, premised on the fact that the issues that we deal with, we're dealing with tonight, are both spiritual and temporal in nature. The issue about how I go to bed and wake up in the morning is deeply spiritual. My future, my children, now uh, my, my sister works for one of the First Nation bands in British Columbia and every day it's seven generations, and we have our own ways of saying that. And I just can say uh, to Texas Southern, University of Houston, uh, last year we did a climate uh, justice seminar, a symposium with the University of St. Thomas. Uh, We had school children, we had tribal leaders, we had scientists, we had moms, dads, grandmothers, grandfathers, grandkids, everybody, that intersection intersectionality, we talked about the interconnectionness of where we start is where we end tonight. Let's just give a big thanks to our panelists, to Texas Southern, everyone that put this together tonight. Thank you. The other thing I'll do if I can get through these, as I mentioned earlier, we're also going through a restoration process at the chapel and uh part of what we're doing is taking uh well it's about four bungalows that house some rental uh some properties for rental and for our offices and opening them up for public space we're building a new program center we're going to be planting over 400 new trees and really opening up the property to the community again to say um, we're all in this together uh, I think what we're reminded tonight, I live over in that area, and I saw that plume of smoke and cloud and dust. I've been thinking of a poem in my head, it's living somewhere between Love Canal and Bhopal. That We live in this every day, but we don't live it like others live it. So your testimonies tonight were very important. It was a very important premise, I think, for university settings as well for the Rothkir Chapel. It's the best, sometimes the most we can do. It seems like the least, but it's just providing the place where people can speak in the first person with no lobbyists, nothing filtered. It may be hard to hear the words, that spiritual growth is to be able to take it back. As I said, when we come in the chapel, we do that kind of inner work. But as I laid out today with that wonderful sculptor dedicated to Dr. King and the Broken Obelisk, at least in our own little world, we come back to that question, what am I called to do today and tomorrow? So in closing, I just want to again, thank you all very much for sharing not only tonight, but really your life work, your vocation. Sometimes we think of work, but it's vocation. It's something very deep. So thank you. We're gonna have a reception. So the continued conversation is very important. And then I wanna say, and we'll get back in touch. You'll see this in June of this year, we'll be reopening. And our first big program is one we do on a biannual basis also, along with symposium. It's the Oscar Romero Human Rights Award that we give every two years. And this year we'll be giving it to uh, climate change advocates and activists, uh, people that we don't always know about and uh, who are on that front line. So I hope you all will uh, join us again for another celebration and observance and and I think chance to fuel the spirit for the work that we got to do, even when we leave. Uh, this great institution here tonight. So again, thank you all very much. Thanks for all the hard work at the university, my staff colleagues. Enjoy the evening and some time for fellowship. Thank you.